to the April edition of the Cinetopia podcast. I'm Amanda, director and founder of Cinetopia, and I'm here with Jim, my co-producer of uh, Cinetopia podcast, uh, managing editor of Take One magazine. Jim, how are you? I'm good. Uh, I'm a bit sunburnt. Um, I failed to get into a beer garden, so it's kind of mixed results this weekend, but you know. <laughs> The, the yeah. overall trend is up. It's improving. So yeah, yeah well, hopefully in the next month you'll you'll get on on the waiting list. But um, yeah, <laughs> no, it is very exciting. Things are things are sunny, and um, yeah, and and uh, we're we're as things are opening up. I'm also we're also back with Simon, who was with us the first for the first time last month. Uh, Simon, how are you in London? Doing well? Ah, uh, yeah, good. Glad to be back. Um, excited to talk to people about films excited to talk to people full stop uh, quite frankly <laughs> yeah. socializing yeah. is good um so we're also here with a new um person to be part of our team clara strachan who's in edinburgh um along with me uh clara uh welcome and tell us a little bit Hi. about your love of film and and what you've been up to Hi. Well, uh, yeah, I've been writing for Take One Cinema, which Jim is the runs and edits, uh, for a couple years now. So, yeah, um, watched film for a long time, but I like to focus my writing, if I can, on films, fiction and documentary, the focus on the intersection between culture and politics. That's my favorite area. So, yeah, the Oscars is providing a lot of issues to, to consider this year, so I'm happy about that. Great. Yes, absolutely. And we at Cinetopia, we love documentaries. So, but surprisingly this month, we're not reviewing a documentary film. We tried to do that, but um, there were too many other options um, speaking of the Oscars and whatnot. So we'll be reviewing four films um, this, this month. Uh, Promising Young Woman is the first directed by Emerald Fennell. It's already out on Sky Cinema and now TV. The second film we'll be reviewing is Sound of Metal, which is out on Amazon Prime. It's directed by Darius Martyr. Uh, Nomadland is uh, the third film we'll be reviewing. It will be out on Disney Plus on the 30th. All three of those are nominated for Oscars um, in many capacities. Um, and the final film we'll be reviewing is Black Bear, uh, directed by Lawrence Michael Levine. Um, and uh, Jim... I got to sit down and talk with uh, the director, Lawrence. Um, so we'll be listening to that as well as part of this podcast. Uh, Jim, is was Black Bear in the Sundance this year or last year? I can't remember. Um, I've got to give myself credit here. Last year. It was a 2020. Last year. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, so it's coming out on the 23rd on demand um, in the UK. So that's it. Plus we'll be talking about um, our favorite thing, which is short films. Um, short films kind of with the idea of the Oscars in mind. Um, so that's, that's our show. So it's that time of year. Um, it's actually that time of year plus a couple months this time around. Um, the Oscars are upon us and this gets me very excited. I get really giddy and um, I haven't gone and seen them all yet, um, but I'll spend the rest of this week doing so. Um, it's a different Oscars, I believe. I'm sure I don't know if everyone's going to be in the room with with all the dresses and whatnot, but I know it's a particularly um, 
challenging debate that we have. Um, we, we take it out on Twitter as well uh, across the rest. Uh, and I, you know, uh, I'm, I, I happen to be the person who seems to love the Oscars and find it really relevant. Um, and I don't even <laughs> need to. Um... I, I'm going to try and not piss on everybody's chips this year. I'll okay. be diplomatic at best. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'll be. Because last time, last time Amanda got super excited and we got into the discussion, I was just like the grumpy old man. Someone's going to do it. Someone, someone's going to do it. Someday I'm going to get all my points together and explain um, <laughs> why it's, it is such an essential thing. I think what just really annoys me is when Jim says it's not relevant and it's essentially is a very relevant thing because we're talking about it. And that's, that, that's my, my main point, but I would like to hear what the others think about the Oscars in general. Is it relevant? Do they care? Do they love it? Do they hate it as well? Did we notice the subtext of shut up Jim there? <laughs> <laughs> on that note, no. I'll shut up. <laughs> so Simon, what's your thoughts on this year's Oscars or Oscars in general? Uh, Oscars in general. Well, I, I recently finished a master's in cultural studies and as part of that I did a contemporary American cinema module and the lecturer decided to structure it entirely around one particular Oscar ceremony. Um, and when I heard that, my heart sank. I was like, <laughs> we're going to talk about the Oscars for an entire term. This is going to be, you know, interminable. It was actually an interesting way to sort of frame, to look at the industry, to look at it through the lens of the Oscars and see what the Oscars actually lends to filmmaking and particularly American filmmaking. Um, I think I came out of that term not sold on the value of the Oscars as an institution, but they are a thing that happens, an important thing that happens in the industry. So you can't discount them entirely. Um, Which ceremony was it? But out of curiosity, was it the Marlon yeah, Brando was... acceptance speech ceremony? No, we, we did watch that YouTube clip, though. Yeah. Uh, no, it was the one where uh, La La Land was mistakenly yeah. announced as the winner of yeah, Best okay. Picture when it was actually Moonlight. Moonlight. Amazing, um, amazing mess up moment. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was so much that happened during that, that, that ceremony that night that was really interesting and relevant looking at La La Land and Moonlight and the kind of uh, implications of that for the industry was was quite an interesting discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, this year, I haven't seen a lot of the Best Picture nominees. I've seen a few of them, uh, a few of them we're going to talk about today, but um, I don't think I've seen as many as previous years, maybe because of the way this year has been and being cooped up indoors and cinemas not being open and, 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 and the changes that we've seen this year. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I guess one of the things I was going to say is I was surprised that I have seen a lot of them because I don't mm -hmm. always see all of them and that I was actually quite happy that a lot of them I like. And uh, that's not always the case with, you know, the, the best feature films. Um, so when a year when we're we've removed a lot of films and we're pushing, you know, them back, you know, for, for cinemas reopening. It's, it's interesting to me that there were quite a few to choose from. Um, but I, I'm, I'm speaking out of turn, Clara, I'm very <laughs> interested in your, your thoughts as well. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, I could easily be the poster girl for someone who really hates the Oscars. Oh. Uh, I am, I'm more of a <laughs> Jim, I blame Sundance gal, uh, but uh, you know, South by Southwest situation. However, I do, I do completely agree with you that 
the Oscars, the Oscars is something everyone talks about, and therefore, by definition, it is something which is important, um, one way or another. So it does tell us publicly what to rail against, <laughs> you know, yeah. well, because it gives us something to criticize and something to think about, and that is important. I mean, this is what we're doing. We're we're consuming things and we're criticizing them. We're considering them critically. So yeah, one way or another, important, very important. Yeah, and then perhaps it's a in in my I I, I appreciate that Clara that was because that was tend of an argument that I have had for many <laughs> for many years. I don't like what they choose in the Oscars, but I also realize that their people and their tastes are different perhaps than mine, um, and that we need to we need to kind of create. Um, you know, like we need, maybe need to improve our standard of, you know, the best of the uh, best. But I started to think about this on my walk today. And I was like, one of the things that's important to me about the Oscars is that if you look at the life of a film, it starts obviously like, you know, with the inception within the filmmaker, and then it goes through a whole process, could be seven years or whatnot. Um, And then it, you know, and then it gets shown at Cannes or it gets shown at, you know, potentially, you know, a film festival and goes through that circle, then it gets into the cinemas. And it's really at the end of, you know, the Oscars are the end of that cycle before you're in the streaming zone. Well, I guess, and in a world where this Mm. cinema life and is changing it to me, just the fact that the Oscars are still there, like is, you know, is kind of like a stability in some capacity, like that we still have this, this, um, this f- final thing to, to look for. The other thing is that um, I would, uh, I, as, as Jim, Jim mimics. It's radio. People can't see what yeah, I just yeah, did. I know. I know. Um, but the other thing I would say is that like, when else do you have the opportunity at, at least without these award shows, because I think it's more about award shows, not just the Oscars to mm. kind of sit back and celebrate that amount of collaboration that's been done and that life of that film. And I'm a real sucker for reality television admit that can go on a whole rant about that. And I did run events, corporate events that were very much like this. But for me, the fact that I get to watch very creative people getting emotional and celebrating, you know, it it might be very self-involved, but ultimately it's the one opportunity that people get to say, you know, thank you. I, I did this creative endeavor and it's out there in the world. You appreciated it. And I'm celebrating that. And so I love it. Would you would you like me to say something positive about the Oscars? Because oh, I do, because I do, I do, I do have something wow. to say, right? <laughs> um, and then you know, normal service will resume after that. But what I will say, the Oscars can be useful for, let's say, is when something maybe comes out of left field compared to what they normally look to reward. It can kind of bring it to a broader consciousness, and the thing that is in my mind is parasite. Right. Yeah. Um, that you know, and like Parasite, I love it. I think it's an excellent film. I, if somebody had asked me when I first saw it, whether I thought it was going to like do as brilliantly as it did at the Oscars, I'd, I would have doubted it mainly because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't an American production. It wasn't in the English yeah. language, but it did. It highlighted it. It did very well. And then you know, I got messages from members of my family who are. You know, I mean, they they like film, they enjoy film, they've seen plenty of classics, and you know, they consume film, but they're not big cinema goers. They're not they're not kind of like you know plugged into it. 
literally days after the Oscar saying, have you seen Parasite? Is it worth seeing? And I, I and I really doubt that that would have happened if it hadn't been for that. So it, it, it can be, it can be good for that reason. I think my bone of contention, I'll keep it as a short one, is I don't think it ends up doing that often enough. I think yeah, it, falls, it's taken a it while. falls into cycles, I think, of looking at the same sort of stuff again and again. And then when you combine that with the kind of the excess and the I, I have a low tolerance. Celebrity worship. Yes, exactly, mm. right? When you combine it with all that, it then starts to kind of just grate on me. But it, when, it, when it goes well, it can be a real force for kind of making people aware of stuff, which is worth worth looking at. And I think last year in Parasite is a good example of that. Yeah. I, I think on that point of sort of expanding representation and inclusivity, I was pleased to see that this year's Oscars, because of the uh, international health crisis, um, is going to have like a BFI South Bank component. I think they're running like a parallel ceremony here in London. Um, and I think that's, that's a good sign at kind of getting away from this um, insular sort of Hollywood paradigm that the Oscars has been in, you know. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. On, on that note, I think one of the, I don't, I don't know if this is what we want to talk about next, but on that note, I think the the category that I found the most interesting this year is probably best director. Um, yeah, because that that's not a you know. So you've got you've got two women in there first of all, which is which is a <laughs> disgraceful rarity <laughs> for that particular Oscar category. A whole two, yeah, I know, Incredible. I know. You know, you've got the the two women there. You've got. Uh, Chloe Zhao, you've got Lee Isaac Chung from Minari, which I think is another interesting one to have in there. You've mm. got to, the one I didn't expect was Thomas Vinterberg for another round. Like I'm fully mm. on board with it, but like you know, it's a film in Danish. I wouldn't have really expected. I'm surprised the amount of traction that's ended up with actually. Um, and then you've got David Fincher, which is maybe more of the the usual suspects. But no, I mean, I I I guess I was the one promoting celebrity worship. Yeah, I do really like, but I do also like um you know the, the again going back to this relevance thing, like I do really do enjoy the fashion thing because I have a big big love of watching you know fashion reality shows or whatever and this is kind of a central component of multiple industries that kind of come to this this moment and it's not just showcasing yeah just not the film industry but it's also you know work of the you know other industries as well so it's certainly something that I'm it would be very interesting this year to see how that that's gonna happen as well but um it will, yeah. It 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 does live on, uh, much to the chagrin of Jim. And we will be talking about our favorites of uh, our picks at the end of the show. Every week. I go to a club. I act like I'm too drunk to stand. And every week, a nice guy comes over to see if I'm okay. You okay? You are so pretty. I am a nice guy. Are you? One, two, three, four. I thought we had a connection. Okay. How old am I? What are my hobbies? What's my name? Sorry, maybe that one's too hard. Cassandra, we're in class together at Forest. You would have been a great doctor. 
What happened? I left under unusual circumstances. You remember what happened, right? Why I dropped out. I'm not the only one who didn't believe it. We get accusations like this all the time. Who needs brains? They never did a girl any good. I'm so sorry I didn't go with her. You gotta let it go. So the first film that we're going to review, speaking of Oscars, is Promising Young Woman. Um, And Clara, why don't you uh, give us a little bit of an overview of that film? So um, I suppose on the surface, you could call Promising Young Woman um, a vengeance film, a comedic vengeance film with a slightly unconventional anti-heroine at the heart of it, played by Carey Mulligan. Um, this is interesting. It has a female director. It's produced by Margot Robbie, which is interesting. A woman who's attracted a lot of attention and probably a lot of flack for being an attractive woman, uh, intelligent woman in the industry, I would imagine. Um, yeah. So the film follows uh, a woman who is hell-bent for good reason on vengeance and educating um, more unscrupulous of the, to be, to be kind, <laughs> of, the, of the male kind. Um, and it really... It feels like a film that should have been made before. There are a lot of other iterations, uh, or a lot of different films that take a similar subject matter, but this one, this one is pleasantly surprising and different. It's just one of those. It's just one of those films that you watch, and as you're enjoying it, as you as you enjoy the comedy, uh, you can't help but feel you can't help but feel angry, simmering. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, this has got the same reading from a lot of men that watch it as well. Um, yeah, and the comedy is just well placed. It's 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 got fine balance going on there. And also, um, I think it's a really fascinating film because of what's come up around it in the, crit- in the critic community as well. Um, so there's been um, a critic, a male critic, received some flack um, for criticizing Carrie Mulligan as, um, as, a, as a person, as, a, as an attractive actress, leading, um, I think it was Peter Bradshaw to say that the, the film critic's ivory terror has fallen, which is a really bold statement. So this is the kind of film we're dealing with. <laughs> Something which can cause the quote film critics ivory tower to fall. Very yeah. dramatic statement. Wow, I didn't even know that. Um but yeah, yeah. no, it certainly um is polarizing, but um wondering what I've, um I agree and I'll talk to you a little bit about what I think in a bit. But Simon, what did you think? Yeah, I, I thought it was a terrifically uncomfortable film to watch in in the best way possible. It's it's it feels like you're watching trauma. It's it's trauma put on screen in all its kind of anger and grief uh, that Fennel puts on screen and that Carrie Mulligan shows through her performance. It it's I think the way it talks about uh, sexual assault is uh, not as subtle as something like The Assistant, mm. but. Uh, and it's got something of I May Destroy You as well, uh, Michaela Cole's recent television series. Definitely. Um, both speaking about patriarchy and injustice and, and predatory men, predatory nice guys uh, and rape culture. It, it, was, it was just tremendous and I needed quite a while to process it after watching it, to, to sit down and, and feel what, Fennel was trying to put on screen what Fennel was trying to express and make me feel while watching it. Also brilliant for the um, for the way that it acts that it shows that women are often guilty for um, taking taking the male side the male um, attacker's side so often. I, I would really like to go a little bit more into uh, some of the reviews that, uh, that popped up after Promising Young Women came out. Mm. Uh, so a variety writer, a male variety writer, um, 
made a statement in, in an otherwise really um, praiseworthy review, said something really off color, which I feel um, really highlights a lot of the problems that the, the movie ironically uh, tries to cover and tries to convey and tries to teach the audience about. Um, Kerry Mulligan's response to that was, they said I wasn't hot enough. Um, uh, the direct quote from the Variety, uh, the Variety reviewer reads, Mulligan, a fine actress, seems a bit of an odd choice as this admittedly many layered apparent femme fatale. Margot Robbie is a producer here, and one can perhaps too easily imagine the role might once have been intended for her. Whereas th with this star, Cassie wears her pickup bait gear like bad drag. Even her long blonde hair seems a put on. So um, I, I was discussing this. It was my boyfriend that brought, me, uh, brought to my attention this review and the fear around it, uh, the debate around it. And my, my initial reaction was, did he, did he understand the rest of the film? Because if you were to take that, um, that quote from out of context, out of the rest of his review, which is, like I say, very, very it praises the film, um, you, would, you would think, how is, he not, how is he not getting that this is kind of, it is uncomfortable for her. It is a costume. It is, it is a layer of defense. It is drag, yeah. technically. She's trying to be someone completely different, someone that will appeal to a man who's looking for someone who seems slutty, who seems easy, who seems ultimately rapeable. So just to say that, you just can't help but wonder, you can't help but wonder, well, well, yeah, this is the problem. There's so many different layers of how we view women that contribute to this kind of, this kind of um, society that we currently, currently exist in. Absolutely. So Jim, uh, what, what do you think about the film? It's interesting. It's actually interesting bringing up that variety review because I, I saw it and it, it didn't come up for a long time because I think it was one from when the film came out of Sundance, actually. But it's one of those ones where I, I find it all the more interesting because, in all honesty, I, I, I don't think I clicked with this film as well as everybody else, but like the issue that that didn't strike me as an issue at all. I think what what I didn't quite click with with the film. So for, first off, it's an interesting film. I think it's definitely worth viewing, and I would definitely encourage a lot of people to go and see it. I think I found it a more interesting film than I necessarily found it a good film, and the reason for that is I'd never quite found the Emerald Fennel blended the tone as well as I think it needed to, to work as effectively as it could have. Um, now that's not to say that there's, it's completely lacking there. I think the fact that she's come so close to doing it is actually remarkable. Um, and I think, I, I think the film has a lot of strengths. I think chiefly among it, uh, Katie Mulligan's performance. Um, and I think she deserves most of the accolades uh, coming her way for it. Uh, and that's kind of the thing that anchors the whole film. And I think she displays these two tones of kind of like rage and grief, I suppose, is maybe the broad category you would have for each of them. She does it extremely well. I'm never convinced that the script does it maybe as well as um, it could. So I, I found it a little bit jarring at times. And some of the dialogue in certain scenes I found very... Um, I don't want to say lacking in nuance because that implies that there's some nuance in areas where there shouldn't be nuance in areas. What I more found is it didn't, it didn't read particularly well within the narrative. It didn't feel like it sat within the story for me. It felt more like it was trying to directly address the issue rather than doing it through the story. I think there is a lot to recommend a film, but I'm for me, the tone just never quite gelled correctly there's a lot to like about the look of it there's a lot to like about katie mulligan's performance and in particular i think the ending is uh you, you know a lot of people spoke about the end i'm not going to say what the ending is um 
the ending is very bold. And I think that part of the ending, which has been actually criticized quite a lot, I actually think that works pretty well. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of people take issue with the film um, for the ending, but for me, it's more stuff that happens before then. And I don't think it blends tone amazingly, if I'm being honest, but the ending for me actually worked quite a lot. I think there's quite a lot. I think there's quite a strong thematic, you know, um, gut punch in the ending and the way it goes about things, which really brings the ideas of the film home. Um, I think it's actually the stuff leading up to it that didn't blend particularly well for me, if I'm honest. You know, I I definitely disagree mostly with what you said, Jim. There, and it's in part because I think when when you talk about the story versus the personality personality or the performance, and I think we had a discussion around a very polarizing film of a year or so ago about you know a really great performance and you know like maybe not so so great of a direction or or something from the moment at the beginning of this film i i had a visceral response that was like as simon said both like painful but also incredibly um something that was resonant and um and was incredibly powerful and just from the from watching the film, but waking up the next day, there I, I will not get this film out of my head, and I think that's something that show showcases it is such a powerful film, and um, that doesn't come just from performance; it comes from so many other aspects of the film. And the the, the thing for me too is the the style and the, you know the black comediness or the black dark dark film and the the way that the film was put together would not have. That that was such an essential component for me to have that and that feeling. I mean, I kind of think about that pharmacy scene and you know this this sort of like reflection of being able to feel comfortable to you know to to fall in love again after you've gone through this kinds of trauma. Um, it 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 it, it captures that in so many ways that is in the story, but maybe isn't necessarily have to be written out and be so explicit. So for that, I think it's. It's done such an exceptional job. Um, the other thing it makes me think about, though, is like when we saw the film The Columnist last, and I don't know if you guys had any of that feeling about that, where it's like we saw The Columnist last month and it was very much about, you know, uh, someone trying to take, um, you know, like take out their frustration or, you know, and ultimately kill mm. a whole bunch of people. Um, and where sh- there isn't, I mean, obviously I won't go into the, won't go into the full details of the story, but like the amount of kind of anti, you know, the amount of revenge that, um, you know, the, 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 the film deals with is not as to the it- it intensity of, you know, you know, a slash murder, you know, murder kind of, you know, serial killer thing, but is actually so much more um, um, poignant and powerful and intense um, and, it just really shows that like when you when you get a film spot on you get it right and i think that like in response to to the way i felt the columnist didn't um i i i just i thought this did it so so well so i'm i was surprised that there was there was a lot of um polarizing responses cuz that was it's an emotional response that i have with regards to the comments about um about not gelling and there being a, a, a strange atmosphere that didn't really work with a with a really wonderful, powerful, bold ending. Um, there, there were there were times when uh, when the script seemed a bit obvious, a little bit clunky, a little bit you know very, very direct. But then, um, in in the sum total of the film, 
I just thought, you know, have, considering lived experiences and everything that's been written and all the conversations that you have with, with misogynists, all the violent spelling experiences, the conversations with, you have with other women, when I took that into account, I just thought, well, this, this film couldn't really be anything else. I mean, it, it, it can't be, it needs to be quite accessible, very transparent, very clear. Everything that needs said is just something that's very direct. It's just, a, it has to be very clear and bold because otherwise yeah. it could be too impenetrable. It could be accused of being too fluffy, too light, too dramatic. So I kind of forgave it for that. Um, because, and it was, and it does have that kind of comic book feel as well. Uh, so I, yeah, I mean, I, I did feel that at times watching it, but you know, in hindsight, fair, fair enough. Yeah, I, I've seen a lot of criticism of it um, related to the marketing of it. Cause I, mm. I didn't see any trailers or marketing before I went into it, but apparently it's been marketed as something of a rape revenge fantasy film, yeah. which, I don't think it is. So people are criticizing it for not being that. Um, but I don't think it is. It's a trauma film. Um, mm. it, it's expressing uh, Cassie's trauma. Um, and there's a, there's a fantastic essay about this by Hannah Strong on Girls on Top, Girls on Tops, um, which, which expresses that terrifically well. Within the first, uh, within the first few minutes of the film beginning, I was sort of like, "Oh God, is it going to be one of the? Is it going to be a bit embarrassing? You know, because I'm, I'm I'm quite cynical, especially when it comes mm -hmm. to the subject of you know, can can a feminist story can, with with a real you know, painful, very real problem, can it make it through the movie system without being butchered and turned into some sort of palatable, repackaged, glamorous, yeah, story? And 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 uh, I was worried initially, but I think it did it did manage that, so. Yeah, I, I think the most important thing about it and perhaps the most interesting thing about it is how individual it feels and it doesn't feel like a homogenized mm -hmm. sort of Hollywood film. It, 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 it isn't, you know, consumable and palatable and cookie cutter. It's an individual expression of anger and trauma. And I think Absolutely. that makes it incredibly powerful, despite what you may think about the ending or uh, the tone or... Uh, the color palette yeah i mean i guess i hadn't seen any of the trailers either um yeah. you know or or heard the responses because i just saw it last night but um yeah it's definitely a film i will want to see again and um explore uh m many times it, it's i think it's going to be interesting to see how this is received um i know i know it's been out for a while um but i'm going to be interested to see what else is written about it uh and see if there is any backlash uh, from some other critics, um, I haven't I haven't read deeply into uh, the variety critics um, counter response counter response to Kerry's counter response, um, but I think he's annoyed. I think he's been he's been, he's doing something which um, a lot of the men in the film did. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not saying this man deserves to be harassed or anything. Uh, I don't know him or what his stances are, but he's already I think being defensive and saying, "How dare women call me." A misogynist <laughs> and it's just it's just this it, it seems like this narrative just doesn't end it's always just accusation denial accusation denial over and over again um so that debate is going to be interesting as, as well as you know see how that ages so promising young women is available now on sky cinema now tv check it out um possibly before sunday if you if you if you want to see if see it in front of the Oscars. You sound great. Yeah, right. What? You're telling me you weren't feeling it? You were in it. 
need to put them all out. I know, but we just need to film. Your hearing is deteriorating rapidly. We'll come back. Till then, Lou, we just keep going, okay? No. Lou, no. let's play tomorrow, let's see what it's like, okay? I'm gonna be like a click track, you can play to me. You have to understand, your first responsibility is to preserve the hearing you have. I can't hear you, do you understand me? I can't, I'm deaf! I'm deaf! So the second film we're reviewing today is Sound of Metal, currently out on Amazon Prime, um, director Darius Martyr. Uh, Simon, tell us about this film. Sure. So Riz Ahmed uh, plays Ruben, who is a drummer in the metal band uh, called Black Gammon. It's irrelevant to the plot, but a great name. Uh, <laughs> he's touring, sort of doing a tour around the United States, and he starts to lose his hearing. Um which obviously impacts his drumming in the band uh, and is a cause of some distress to him. He's worried, being a former addict, that this will lead to a relapse um, and that this will be a real setback for him. So it's sort of positioned at the intersection of deafness and addiction. He goes to uh, rehab, to a special rehab community uh, for the deaf community. And... The film follows him as he learns to come to terms with his deafness, as he joins that community and as he learns anew what his status is in the world, how, how, how he's going to be in the world from then on. Great. And uh, what did you think of the film? Uh, I loved it. I thought it was uh, a fantastic performance from Riz Ahmed uh, as Ruben. He's, he's really represents the frustration and the anger of that character. Uh, in a terrific way. He's he's thoughtful and he's realistically frustrated. Um, speaking of the Oscars, I believe he's the first Muslim to be nominated for uh, for best best lead actor. Um, and and I think the most important part of the film is the way it represents the deaf community, um, capital D, uh, for deaf community. Um, it's got a lot of deaf actors in it who are all terrific, and. Yeah, it ensures the importance of, of Ruben gaining a connection with that community, with other people uh, who have either lost their hearing or been born, been born deaf. Um, and that sense of community and solidarity really comes through. Um, the, the sort of uh, leader of the, of the rehab centre, uh, Joe, is played by Paul Rassi, and he is terrific. He, he gives a fantastic performance. Um, both doing uh, American Sign Language as a character and uh, talking as a character. It, 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 it really hit me emotionally, um, and I didn't expect it to at all. Uh, yeah, 
Yeah, and you were speaking to the actors, a shout out to my friend Hilary Bach, who I saw in there. I grew up with her um, oh, wow. to elementary school. And yeah, she's mm-hmm. been an, um, an actor for years. And I, I was it was really exciting. So I'm not sure she's listening right now, but I will definitely, <laughs> sorry, yesterday, I will definitely reach out to her. She was um, within, was it, uh, you know, in the, in the group, um, you know, as he's sort of um, learning, you know, like learning how to deal um with his situation i agree with you simon completely i think this was a really emotional thing emotional film it was really amazing i think the performances all around were fantastic and, and incredibly the the main performance i think one of the things that i always kind of hit is how much like to me especially as kind of as a documentary filmmaker how much sound is such an important component of a film and sometimes oh, yeah. how it emotionally can um, you know, uh, you know, really creates a soundscape. And this film just blew me away. I think it was also how it was able to kind of jump back and forth between his perspective and, you know, like, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, not, not his perspective, you know, and it was so clearly done and so artfully done. And um, that I, you know, it, it, it really, it, it was one of those things where I think it would have been quite intense for me to see in a cinema um, because it, it certainly is something that, you know, there, it's, it's, it's very emotional, um, you know, um, dealing with grief and law, you know, and, and sort of acceptance of, of your new identity and, and the things that the complications in your life. Um, but I di- I've just found because it was so intense, it, it, it was so incredible and really should should highlight that aspect of the film for sure. Clara, what did you I think? think? Um, I th- well, I just learned today. Well, I initially, I loved it. Um, I am a crier, but I did cry. And that still means something, even though I'm a crier. Um, <laughs> me too, me as well. <laughs> it was, I loved it for so many reasons, for so many reasons. I mean, Riz Ahmed is so fantastic. Uh, he's, he's, very, he's so committed. He really goes deep. He goes hard. He he really he's he's he ha- learned American Sign Language to the point of proficiency, which is just so convincing. And it, I mean, it is it's a subject where you can you you can wince when you hear that there's a film that could be about a disability because it could be handled so poorly, and it, it could just be something that's done as like a token thing, like I'm going to try and make a film that's representative, and it sometimes it can really miss the mark, mm-hmm. um, as is shown with um was it Sia's um. Uh, autism doc, uh, M- film music? that really missed music, music yeah, yes yeah. apparently that I've not seen it but apparently that was horrible uh, but yeah so I mean I, I, I hoped for the best and it, it gave it to me uh, I also like a lot of the punk cameos that were in there because I like punk music so there's a surfboard uh, band cameo amazing uh, yeah it's, so just just genuine in every way so much genuine in every way and I think um, I think Mixmag actually did a couple of articles on it because the sound mixing is so fantastic and so professional and you can feel it you, you can feel it. It's so it's so visceral, almost dreamlike the way that you can slip in their perspectives, but you're in a waking life, the waking experience of another person. Um, I, I was so surprised that it took so long for this film to be made. Uh, mm-hmm. It took six years from the point of conception to the point of being made uh, because um, the, the uh, people involved with it just really wanted it to be authentic and they wanted to have people who already knew sign language and they wanted to have some deaf actors. Um, and from that as soon as that commitment was made, uh, financing became extremely difficult because obviously names can get funding. Um, so six years. And um, I think Iraqi, Iraqi, uh, Iraqi, the guy who plays um, the counselor, he has two adult deaf children. Um, so yeah, just so, just so convincing, so emotive. It's kind of like a real life horror to me as well. 
Um, <laughs> um, I think a good horror can be, I'm not, this isn't obviously within the horror genre, but what makes a good horror for me is that uh, there's naturalism, there's a sense yeah. of normality and only one person is experiencing a different reality and that therein lies the terror. Mm-hmm. That they're experiencing something that nobody else can understand or fathom. And so, yeah, this gives, this gives an insight into the, the isolation and the fear that a new, newly found disability and the isolation, the ostracism that you can get from that can bring. Um, it's just, it, it, need, it needs spoken about. It needs, it needs done. I, I couldn't believe how uh, refreshing it felt as a storyline, considering that I love film so much, but it's really just not a subject which has been taken on um, as often as it should be, I think. Absolutely. I, I, I will readily second everybody's opinions about this. Um, I thought it was an excellent, excellent film. Um, so I, I saw it for the first time a wee while ago, actually. And then I rewatched it again for the show. And I think the thing that struck me is the things that I appreciated more on a second go around. Um, so th- th- watching it the first time, we've, we've spoken about the sound design and the sound editing, and it really is excellent. And I think that's the thing that maybe strikes you the hardest um, when you're first uh, seeing it. And I think it, it must be, it, it, it's a very hard experience to convey. Um, but I think in terms of maybe... And you know, I mean, ultimately, these things are shared. You can't, you can't really convey that experience in any objective manner. But I think what it does do is it manages to invoke the emotions um, that are then very readily displayed by Riz Ahmed. And I think his performance is the thing that I had a greater appreciation for. Which isn't to say I didn't appreciate it the first time. I did think it was very good, but the second time around, you notice these little just these little subtle things of kind of like, you know, when his face is blank, when he's trying to kind of understand something and he can't, when he looks a little bit confused, when he can partially understand that, you know, it's, it's all these little things is a very finely measured performance. I think it's, I, th- I think it's excellent. I think I also appreciated Paul Rassi's performance a lot more the second time around. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, that, and there's one particular scene where without going into kind of like, you know, the trajectory of the story where they have a, I don't want to say confrontation, but they have a, a heart-to-heart about a particular choice that has been made. And the absolute kind of heartbreak and pain on Paul Rassi's face is, 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 is almost, like, it's, it's just almost tangible. It's very, it's, very, it's very hard to watch in kind of the most beautiful way without wanting to sound kind of too, you know, too flowery about it. But it, it, it's really an excellent film. It's really superb. Um, and I think the where the film ends at is fantastic the ending of this film i absolutely love and it brings together so many different strands of um i say the community um that ruben finds himself a part of his backstory which which is an interesting one because like you never get any explicit reference to his backstory as an addict um but it is there and i think it's conveyed extremely well without needing to go into anything kind of the overt or you know hammer at home or anything um and i think there's there's a lot going on that is very subtle but very effective uh and i think that's across the direction uh the sound editing the performances um you know the chiefly riz ahmed and paul rassi i would say but the supporting ones are from the likes of olivia cook are also you know really good and really you, you know they bounce off those main performances in a way that really kind of like heightens the emotions they're experiencing i i basically don't have a bad word to say about this film to be honest um mm-hmm. i think it's I, I think it's superb and i would readily second everything everybody said about it. 
I really regret not being able to see this in the cinema because yeah. we, we've Absolutely. all mentioned the sound mix and sound and, and silence is so important to mm. this film. You're, you're, the film's representing his hearing loss through the sound mix and through subtitles. And there, there's some moments of silence that I imagine would have been so powerful in the cinema when it mm. was absolutely silent. Because I'm in, I'm in an inner city London flat. It's not completely silent in my flat by any means but in a cinema it would have been so <laughs> exactly yeah what, what i will say I've, I've watched it twice on a reasonably decent tv right but a tv nonetheless <laughs> what i will say is this is getting a theatrical release on may 17th and despite having seen the film twice there's a very high probability i am going to try and go i'm see. going i'm, I'm but, making people go i'm bringing other people yeah. as well like, I like think that, that, that is the way to see this film if, you, I, if you know if you're happy to and it's safe and you know all that but if you can it is absolutely the way this film should be seen without a shadow of doubt I think it's because Clara said it was like a horror film in some capacity or made some sort of comment to that. And my aversion for, you know, and the intensity of horror films that I, I would say it's exactly that. It's I, I did say I, I would have I found myself putting turning the sound down because yeah. um, because mm -hmm. it was because the emotional impact of this 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 story is affecting me. And, and I'm you know, I'm thinking about the loss of hearing and um that i it would it would be so intense for me so also it's it's the fact that it's not just um the fact that they, they've they've got silence there's silence while there's action on screen that has been done before we've, we've, yeah. we've experienced this before but what really what really drives home the the, the fact that uh deaf people and bikes and other uh, people with disabilities are essentially second-class citizens in terms of healthcare and and, and you know work and in other regards that's driven home by um, the cures that Riz Ahmed tries to seek, and the fact that mm -hmm. they're just not good enough, and the fact that they're they're not they're not a solution, and and they and they they prize any kind of any kind of of um, reverting back to what was before is better than what could could lie ahead, and that just shows how devalued these people are as community and how their experiences and their way of seeing the world just is completely devalued, and that is the most difficult part, not not necessarily silence, but here just that was really. That was driven home very well with the sound mixing, which you'll see if you go see the film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The way it talks about deaf culture, um, again, capital D deaf culture, was not something I've seen on screen before, um, and it was just a fantastic way of showing uh, this marginalised social group mm -hmm. um, and how they experience the world, how how the world treats them, like you say, Claire. I think I think and I thinking like about the community aspects of the film I think something else adds is because if you think about the place that Ruben seems to find himself in um at the start of the film and when he first starts to experience hearing loss not only about how uh, members of that community see the world but also what they can offer to people in terms of viewing things differently uh, whether it's about now whether that's about themselves or about you know the world more generally i think one of the one the journey that the ruben character goes on in this film is i i think it's wonderful and i think it's brilliantly performed by riz ahmed but i think what's quite interesting about it is it is completely rooted in his experiences um from that community in terms of the the positive places that he ends up at the end of it and i and like you that's not that's not something i remember seeing a lot of on film if at all mm. um so it's just i i think it's unusual it's unusual to get 
a film which has this overlap on the Venn diagram, you know, of where I think it's saying something which is very important, but also kind of engaging and it's technically brilliant. And, you know, that it's, it's also a very accessible film. I mean, I'm not going to say, you know, this is not, this is not one of the, you know, I mean, it's up for a bunch of Oscars, as we said at the start of the show. This is not one of these weird esoteric choices that, yeah. um, you know, that can occasionally kind of find its way in there where, you know, I think maybe general audiences would struggle to connect to it. That's that's not this film. Um, and I think it's quite rare to get one that has the overlap in all those areas, to be honest. The story of their the core relationship um, at the beginning, um, the romantic relationship, the evolution of that is something which everyone can relate to, regardless of the element that there's a there's um a disability or there's a there's a serious physical issue which which has driven the relationship over over hard times it's it's something that you, we can all understand when people change people's people's um goals their their destinations their you know trajectories in life change and that that is that is an overarching thing and it's just it just makes it so much more easy to feel for if you you know if you don't have any experience of other of other issues in the film yeah, it, it's there's a real truth to the the dialogue, the casual gestures, the interactions in the film. It feels true, and like Jim says, I think it's got a broad appeal, uh, which these kinds of films often don't have. Well, absolutely, I think it's a a sure win for all four of us, um, and it is on Amazon Prime right now. So check out Sound of Metal. You're Allison? Yeah, you're Gabe? Hi, I'm Allison. Oh, I know. I'm Blair. You're really pretty. You are too. You used to be an actress and now you're a director. Why'd you give it up? I didn't. So do you guys have a plan for this place? I don't really know what we're doing. We were living in Brooklyn and it was getting so expensive and we weren't really working, so. I figured if um, I never learned how to cook, then I would never become a housewife. You're really hard to read. Yeah, you know what, I get that all the time. Do you find it weird acting in your own films? I actually find it kind of humiliating. So next film we're going to review is Black Bear and Jim is going to tell us about that film, Jim. So Black Bear um, debuted at Sundance 2020 uh, and is coming out after many, many delays. Um, I saw it, and I think you also saw it, Amanda, as part of Glasgow Film Festival. Yeah. It got its, I think it was its UK premiere. I could be wrong about that. Mm-hmm. But it was it was basically one of the first times it had been seen in the UK. Um, directed by Lawrence Michael Levine, who's done a few films before, but none of which I've actually um, seen. And basically the setup as we go into the film is Aubrey Plaza is playing a actress-turned-filmmaker, uh, called Allison, who has gone to stay at this kind of remote cabin as a sort of writer's retreat thing that has been organized by the couple who uh, own the property, uh, Gabe, played by Christopher Abbott, and Blair, played by Sarah Gadden. 
And it basically, in the initial segment of the film, we follow them spending an evening together, which is very awkward. Um, so we've got Allison there trying to find some sort of like creative inspiration. There's a kind of obviously developing sexual tension between her and Gabe, uh, much to the annoyance of Blair. Uh, Blair, at the same time, will go and snipe about Gabe's uh, musical career, or lack thereof, as the case may be. Um, and basically, they kind of go around circles with this. Elements of passive-aggressive uh, behavior, uh, you know, there's a sense that Gabe, in terms of the way he speaks about Blair, can be uh, maybe a little abusive, but certainly, at best, he is a kind of objectionable character really um you know he comes out with some stuff that is not particularly great um and without giving up too much because i think this is one of these films where the 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 less you go in knowing i think the more interesting you'll find it although i'm sure i think i already know that amanda may well disagree with that when we come to that part of the discussion but it basically it reaches a critical point about halfway through the film and then basically things switch up the roles change and the way that characters are interacting with each other change completely. Um, so it's a, it's a very confusing film, um, but I did find it quite an interesting one. I am interested what other folk thought about it, but that's the basic setup. And it may sound very vague, but without laying everything out um, in front of folk, um, I think that's really, we'll see what we need to go into to talk about what we think works and doesn't work about the film. But I think we'll start with Clara. What did you what did you take from the film? How did you find it? Well, uh, I, I initially was excited. I, I went in not knowing very much. Um, so I was initially excited to see um, Aubrey Plaza coming in with a sort of very disruptive bordering on psychopathic character, um, a la Ingrid Goes West, which I really enjoyed. So I was kind of, I was kind of psyched for that. Uh, and, you know, to an extent, I enjoy watching really abysmal relationships on screen because it makes me feel good about myself So, and my, my relationships. So from that perspective, great. Um, otherwise, I have some bones to pick. I do have, I do have some bones to pick. I, I, I want to I know these bones, though, right now. <laughs> okay, okay. I, do, I'm not, I don't want to give too much away, so I'm going like, oh, okay. to be careful. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, generally with the Oscars... Um, I read a couple of articles about what people think about the picks and about some of the themes of the things. And a lot of people complain saying, oh, it's Hollywood being navel gazy again, mm -hmm. looking at themselves, looking at their own processes, being, being very neurotic about those processes uh, and about cinema itself, um, getting very meta about the, the, the act of, of filmmaking, being concerned about what you make, how you bring characters across, who gets the credit for those things. That's, these are all themes that come up uh, this year, but also in previous. Um, so uh, yeah, I think that's I think it's a criticism I'm going to level at it is that it's 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 for people it's it's about uh, process of filmmaking or ideas um, I think a lot of it and um, it kind of it kind of irritated me because it was it seemed to be going in one going in a really good direction and mm -hmm. then took took a left turn and kind of almost fell into being trying to be a sort of a harebrained comedy with a, with a rotten core to be disruptive um, and I wasn't. Didn't didn't love it. Didn't love it. I mean, I was gonna say the same thing. It's the most meta film I've ever seen, and also like feels like a short. I don't know, like a short film or small crew or something like that. And it's you know, oh yes, I've been there. I've seen that. I've been yeah. in this in, in place. And oh, it's clever. And oh, you know, there's yeah. like um, 
a David Lynch, you know, change in narrative switch and what's going on. And, and I'm not doing it because you'll like it. I'm doing it because that's the way it is. Yeah. To me. Like, you know, it's kind of like drove me nuts. And I just got to the point where I was just like, Ugh, I've seen I've seen this done better. And this what is the point of this? And I know that I, I like a meta film and I like a discussion yeah. about and I'll take, you know, I like the Oscar. So I like celebrating Hollywood. But this to me just didn't do enough for me to 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 take all the clever like it was just too clever for its own good and my if I'm being honest I actually found it insulting to the other filmmakers in the world <laughs> that it was chosen and it's been given a lot of attention yeah. I know I, I know that sounds really harsh but like but really of all the films made this year all the subjects and things that we think about all the feelings all the, all the, all the everything this this came up and I just can't help but cynically feel fear I should say not feel I, I can't help but fear that it came up because the people that were involved in it mm. um and the way that the, the academy likes to see itself or like or, or, or the, the way that the academy thinks they should consider the act of filmmaking in the films yeah. interesting so. I mean also it seems like a Sundance film and I know that Jim loves to like complain about Sundance films so it's funny that you really enjoyed it but um it, I, it, it nobody... feels very Sundancey to me no, nobody. Listen, to look at it on the surface, nobody is more surprised than I am. <laughs> right? It's this. It, it is a very self-consciously indie Sundancey film. It is the only thing I would say is I think it can, it can be read as kind of an allegory of the creative process. I don't think it has to be, but it can be. But given it can be, nobody is more surprised than I am. <laughs> I like this, right? Um, I, I think part of the reason for it is because it approached it in this slightly, slightly obtuse manner, I think is maybe one way of putting it. And I think I quite like the fact that... So there's two segments to the film, right, that we've been, we've been kind of alluding to, where basically a lot of the character interactions and relationships switch up. And it's not particularly clear how how one segment of the film relates to the other one. Um, now, based on the conversation I had with Lawrence Michael Levine, I don't think it's even necessarily 100% clear to him how they case, Now, in my case, that clicked with me, right? I liked that aspect of it. I liked the fact that it was this ridiculous sort of I don't want to say optical illusion, but like when I wrote about it, I used the um, I used the analogy of like a Penrose triangle, right? It's this mm. impossible object, right? And you can't you can't relate one part of it to the other, and the way that that links into kind of the way people can be reborn through the creative process, say, and the way that you can reimagine yourself and your relationships with people through that, I kind of enjoyed. But the thing that I liked about it especially is that in doing that with this film, it's not very clear how one segment relates to the other. One is not the inspiration for the other. There are certain ways that things are working where it's basically absolutely impossible to untangle the way that they relate to each other. And to me, I I like that because it means that you can kind of bring what you want to it. Now, I, I fully appreciate that, that that's just going to annoy the shit out of some other people, and clearly, <laughs> and clearly it has, right? But to me, the the slight... I, to me, it was more kind of like a mood piece, and I think the way that I engaged with it was more as 
of trying to imagine how you would go about seeing yourself through these processes or how you relate to the other people. I think one of the things that I found interesting about it is the way the relationships completely turn on their head, yet some of the characters display similar traits to what they were doing in the first segment. And it was really this idea that even though they're being presented as completely different, there is this intrinsic quality. And the only real way that you can define someone is by their interactions and how they treat other people to a certain extent. And there was just, there were, there were bits there that I found interesting. And I think there were enough things there for me to hook on to, for me to continue to find it interesting. Even as I was watching it, I was fully cognizant of the fact that that is not going to be the case for everybody. And we're proving that here. But for me, for me, it worked on quite a few levels. I'm not completely saying that it's totally annoyed me. It's just that, you know, it, it's just that it's, it wasn't, it wasn't stimulating me enough, like, you know, getting me, like, I, I just wasn't that impressed. That's, yeah. uh, and, and for me to have to go through this process of figuring that out and, you know, and dealing with all this cleverness and uh, obtuseness, I just didn't, I, it, it didn't give me any sort of, in response to what we said about Promising Young Woman, which is had a viscerally visceral response to that, which was really powerful and, you know, and unexplainable how much I liked it at the very beginning now obviously i can go back and watch it now i'm sorry but we need to hear what simon thinks yeah i i liked it um but i'm not at all going to argue with anything that you or clara said because i've everything that you've said i've got in my notes as well i i, I saw it as a kind of sort of like a chamber like one of uh ingmar berman's chamber pieces like autumn mm. sonata or yeah. persona mixed with kind of Lynch's Lost Highway and yeah. a David Foster Wallace short story. I, I think it's a postmodern take on those kinds of Bergman films. But I think it has all the self-indulgence, self-reflexiveness and sort of relentless inwardness that, that can characterize the postmodern. Mm -hmm. And all I can say is I quite like that. Uh, <laughs> I, I quite like that form. Um, but I can fully see and fully appreciate that that not everyone else will, that the metaness of it won't work for, for other people. So it worked for me. I'm not eager to go back and watch it again, but I, I found it quite entertaining and quite interesting. I yeah, think I, mean, I had been missold it, but, but give it, I gave it a cursory look to see what, what was roughly what was going on. Um, and I think, it was, I think it was marketed or at least described as a thriller hmm. of some kind, or like the word thriller was used. And the, I know I shouldn't, I shouldn't presume that there's going to be, um, I shouldn't presume that there's going to be like the arc of a thriller and, and be like, oh, well, that's what I'm waiting for. And if I don't get it, I'm going to be annoyed. But there was, it didn't have the hook of a thriller. It was, it was, it did feel very, it did sort of leave me cold. I completely, I got what it was trying to do. It just didn't, it just didn't capture me enough. I mean, I, I get there, there was a lovely, there was a nice mood. There was a lot I liked about it. But there's just that's, something about it. Just... That's interesting because I, I I read it I read it somewhere. It was a black comedy. I, I think I read in Sight and Sound it was a black comedy, and again I felt that was missold. I don't think it's <laughs> I mean, a black I comedy. Think, what to, was to, to, funny to about film's... it at all? To be this film's primary defender, I'm going to say it, it, it was the, those things, all of them at the same time. <laughs> what? Right? So no, I don't no, think no, it's the same I'm sorry, there, there is one, there is one, that, that, yeah. Okay, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fair. But, but no, but I mean, in terms of, the, the, there is a thriller element to it, but I'm not going to, I'm, I'm, that, that, this is not a hill I'm going to die yeah. on, right? Because it's not, <laughs> it, like it's classic, it doesn't really have that arc. The but it's a black comedy. 
in terms of black comedy, there is. I mean, like in terms of the, yeah. the opening, the opening segment. There's one scene where um, Christopher Abbott like storms up a boat jetty because it's a lake house and, that, and it, it, for some reason I find it absolutely hilarious. Yeah, like, it's just like so. It does have these bits. The only thing I will say, and I'm going to make a really, really weird comparison here, is just Amanda, are you talking about the like the the intolerable cleverness, right? Mm. To me, though, I think part of what I liked about this is it's not a film that considered... I or Certainly, that's not the impression I got before. And then having spoken to the director, I, I think I'll, I'll stick with it. It's not a film that considers itself smarter than the viewer, right? And yeah. one film where I really found that recently, and I say this as somebody who otherwise likes his films, was something like Tenet, right? Which has got this real ridiculous mind-bending thing, and it's but it, it's begging for you to solve its mysteries, right? It's actually begging you to engage with how clever it is and how well constructed it is. And to yeah. me, Black Bear doesn't do that. It's kind of a, it, it's willing to exist as its own thing, and it's not a, it's a thing which is interesting, and you'll get something out of it if you kind of engage with it in that way. But it's not begging to be solved. Um, yeah, I, so, I think. Yeah, I think Tenor is a puzzle box that wants you to spend time and go back to it and solve it. And I think Black Bear just wants you to accept it on its own terms. Like yeah. you either feel something towards it or you don't, and it doesn't care if you feel it or not. Well, and, yeah. and that's and that's what it did for me because I don't care. Yeah, <laughs> precisely, care. exactly. So, my my feeling is like so, yeah. so. Yeah. What of it? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's it. I, I I think it's it's postmodern in a way that you either like that or you don't. Yeah, and, and I, I like postmodern. I like postmodern, but I I feel yeah, like yeah. I've I've run into films where they're too reminiscent of stuff before, and people are like, "Oh, I love it so much," but I absolutely hate it because it put me through two <laughs> hours of something that I just was like, "I've seen it before," and it it destroyed my evening. Where this, one, <laughs> you know, this one just didn't do either. It didn't, yeah. You know, it didn't bring something new. It's totally, yeah, it's totally meta. It's totally clever. It's totally Sundance. Uh, but like, it didn't bring, it didn't, it didn't bring anything to the table. Yeah. So why are we all talking about it? Because it's good. <laughs> this is what the Oscars Actually does good. to people. <laughs> I liked Aubrey Plaza's performance. I thought she was. She was interesting, not as good as in Ingrid Goes West, but that there's something of the kind of uh, manipulation behind the mysteriousness behind her performance, that the en en enigmatic nature of it that really uh, was interesting. Yeah, I mean, I kind of hope it gets her a little, um, even recognition for her role, because I, I still think she's somebody who gets pigeonholed into this kind of like, you know, her quirky kind of like Parks and Rec type persona, but she's, you know, yeah. she's a very good actor. I think it deserves a lot of credit. And whatever may be difficult to connect with this film, I do think her performance is very good. Um, and I think she's... She's very good in that way. So I think, if nothing else, I would like her to see get uh, see her get more roles like this in the future. Maybe, um, maybe not necessarily this type of film. Um, Love so to see her in a horror back here, but but yeah, exactly. Well, just aside, we definitely think you should check it out and and uh, and and let us know what you think. So that is, it's available on the twenty third of April on demand, Black Bear, and stay tuned because Jim will uncover the mysteries of this film with Lawrence shortly thereafter.
I've read a little bit about how you went to how you went about writing the film, uh, and there was no plan for the script. What I was wondering was, at what point did you come up with the the structure, kind of as it was put together? Because you have this first part that was kind of inspired by a dream, and then there was a second part which was around, um, but you hadn't necessarily attached to anything yet. But the structure kind of heightens the emotions that I feel are at play with the different characters. So I was wondering, when did you come up with this idea to take these two things together, uh, put them together, and then have those kind of bookends with Aubrey Plaza either end of the film? Um, see, I, uh, I have to go back. This is back about three years um, so I'm trying to remember exactly what happened, but I, I remember I wrote, I, I read a book uh, about writing called From Where We Dream. Um, and it was um, the, the author of the book, it's, it's for writing fiction, but I was struck by some of the ideas in it. Um, and uh, he kind of suggests that the writer go into a meditative uh, trance uh, almost and wait for scenes to start uh, popping into his or her head. Um, so when I say I had no plan, um, it doesn't mean that I didn't eventually come up with a blueprint for what the script was gonna be. What it means is that I, when I went to the office, I didn't have any preconceived notion of what I was trying to do. So when I went in, I, I wasn't like, oh, I'm gonna write a romantic comedy or I'm gonna write a, a thriller about the mob or whatever, <laughs> you know, I didn't have, or like I once met this guy who robbed a, you know, an ice cream truck and I'm gonna write a story about it. It was more just like, let's go to the office, meditate and see what kind of scenes start to present themselves um, to me. And um, I think I went to the office one day and I had had a dream the previous night that I, I sort of was, was recalling. And um, I think the dream became uh, part of like the jumping off point for a series of scenes that, I, that occurred to me very quickly, maybe within, uh, I, don't, I don't know, an hour or something like that. Okay. Um, a, a series of scenes came to me and I just wrote them down really quickly. So in a notebook, and that was, that was part one. Um, and somewhere around the time, I don't, I don't know, I don't know if it was before or after, but uh, I, at some point I, I knew that I wanted to tell, I got the sense that I wanted to tell this story again with um, changing the characters around. So I, I told this story of heartbreak. That was part one, you know, this was the scenes that had come to me. It was mm -hmm. for part one. And, um, and I thought, oh, it'd be interesting to tell this story from a, a reverse angle where the person who had done the house uh, home wrecking in part one would be the person whose home had been wrecked in part two, because I think many of us have been on both sides of this issue. Um, or a lot of times the pain from previous relationships becomes the pain we inflict in the next relationship. So I was playing around with that idea. And so I, um, I, I, that's, where, that's where it came to me to do the two ideas. And then I realized that I had written in a similar state about a decade earlier, a series of scenes had come to me in about an hour that I jot, jotted down in a notebook. And when I looked back, for, when I looked around for that notebook, I found it and that became the basis for part two. So it was 
it was really these two things that came to me very quickly that I then paired together because I noticed that they happened to have complementary stories. And I noticed this older story had the exact thing. It was actually the same story as the one I had just told, slightly reconfigured. I don't know, kind of a complex answer, but it was sort of a complex, I don't know, mental series of mental um, series of thoughts that, that yeah, no, no, I, I don't doubt it. I've been turning, I've been turning the film over in my head semi regularly since I since I saw it. It's kind of so it's, it's fascinating to hear how it came about. One of the things you mentioned there was when you were coming to part one in particular, it was the the no plan aspect. This is more there was no preconceived notion of what it would be, or there was no preconceived notion of the plot. Let's be maybe kind of themes and emotions were there, but. Until I thought it up, but like, isn't that true of most movies? Well, yeah, yeah, there is that. <laughs> but one thing I was wondering is because obviously, the, the, so the film, the film premiered a long time ago um, at twenty. I've got to get my dates right now because twenty twenty time has no meaning. Twenty twenty Sundance, um, and you're now obviously kind of at the point where it's coming out in the UK, and you're doing interviews like this one, and there's a trailer for the film. How wary are you of prejudicing someone's expectations for the film in terms of what they're expecting to get out of it because i think one of the one of the main i came to this film with basically no prior knowledge of it um i mean i knew i knew of the film but i hadn't watched the trailer i hadn't read any interviews or anything and i I feel like that's the ideal way to experience it so as a filmmaker and it certainly sounds like maybe that's part of how you conceived of it how do you balance those two needs the need to kind of get people interest in the film but also allowing them to bring their own interpretations to it which feels like one of the main strengths of the film yeah that's a that's an interesting question i am as you know i i make my living as a screenwriter in hollywood so i'm kind of you know on the front lines of seeing how things are made and basically the way things are made is they're made so that you can say something about them first, like uh, Superman, everybody knows what it is. Batman, everybody knows what it is. You don't need to explain anything or like, you know, that's why there's so many biopics or so many picks now based on true stories. Um, it's all things that you can sum up in a line that are really easy to understand so that it cuts through the noise of modern society and everybody's like, that's the hook that's going to get me yeah, in there. The, the elevator really... pitch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, this isn't a movie where that's really uh, desirable. You know, this movie to me is best experience if you know absolutely nothing about it beforehand. Um, you know, luckily my job isn't marketing, but I, I will say this movie was really written from a, a very personal place. Um, and it was, came after a period where I'd been doing a lot of more commercial work. So I really wanted to write something that wasn't, um, you know, I, I hope that the film makes a profit and whatever, but it, it, it wasn't designed for commerce, really. It was much more designed for expression. So um, uh, it has been very complicated to, to, to thread that needle, um, especially with something like a trailer where there are certain aspects of the film that are hinted at that I would rather the audience be totally unaware of. You know, I don't think the trailer gives the movie away, but it, it probably gives more away than, than I had hoped or, or planned on. There just aren't things that I thought about when I was making the movie. 
I was thinking it's different. You're in a, I was in a different state in, in my, my office writing this film. I was just like, what's the most exciting thing that can happen now? Yeah. You know, not like, okay, how am I going to, how am I going to, how am I going to market this? <laughs> yeah, what's exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, there was a line that hearing you talk about it, actually, there's a line that kind of stuck with me where I'm, I'm wondering if this is kind of your, your feelings to kind of making the film was when I think it's, um, Aubrey's character in the first segment says, I have something to say. I just think the movie is the only way to say it. Um, mm -hmm. I find that I find that very interesting. Like, is obviously like there's a lot of there's obviously a lot of stuff put into films about, you know, what are they about? What are they really about? But there's I think one of the real um things I enjoyed about this film is there are many different ways you can interpret it. I don't feel like and maybe I'm just saying this so that I can get validation from my own <laughs> my own interpretations of it, but I feel like it's it's being constructed in a way that you can bring your own thoughts and emotions to it and still be able to relate to it quite strongly. Is that is that something you hoped for as you were kind of approaching the final the final film or I did. Um, I definitely hope for that. I don't know if I would do it again. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's interesting to, to, I wanted, I wanted, when I was writing it, I purposely designed it so that there could be multiple interpretations of the film because I thought that that would be fun for an audience. Um, I, I wonder if it limits my audience though in a certain respect because i think a lot of people go to movies for closure and this one doesn't really give you that or um i had hoped that it would give more emotional closure than maybe it does um and some of that has to do with um just expediencies of shooting you know like uh, the ending wasn't shot the way that i imagined it and things like that um i'm you know, I'm worried that I'm I'm wandering off question, but I, it was it was intended to be uh, open to several interpretations, but not any old interpretation. You know what I mean? There are yeah. mm -hmm. a finite number of ways. Yeah, that be <laughs> yeah. It's interesting when you 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 talk about lacking closure there, because I because I got a sense of closure from it, but in this fairly, and I don't know how well I'm going to be able to express this in a fairly circular manner uh, mm -hmm. you know in, in a sense it's kind of its own self-contained um loop of emotion and kind of the way that the characters yeah. and the segments relate to one or so I, I so i do get closure from it just not quite in a sort of like everything's in the box wrap up with a nice bow and there you're done um yeah. so not in that sense but i did get a feeling of uh closure from it one one thing i was wondering about was because obviously, there's, there's, when I was watching the film for the first time, I interpreted the the, the presence of the the bear, right, mm -hmm. in in a certain way. Is there any particular like um, symbolism, for want of maybe a better word, that you personally attach to that? Even if it was after the fact, if you kind of came up with the idea and then attached something to it after, was there anything in particular you had in mind or have attached to that? idea in the film the presence of the the presence of the bear or is there or or is that also meant to be kind of there for interpretation um it was some it's it's definitely meant to be there for interpretation and and a question that i've had to deal with 
And I guess, you know, I set this up for myself by including something that is clearly asking to be read as a symbol. Um, but I, I'm not a big fan of heavy handed symbolism in movies. Um, the, the use of the bear uh, occurred to me in the manner that I kind of described to you where I was dreaming up scenes and, um, you know, this part one ended in a car crash and what would be in the woods. Uh, but, uh, you know, a bear, a black bear would mm -hmm. be in the woods at night. That could be something that could cause them to swerve off the road. There weren't that many other options, <laughs> you know, of something that would be in the woods at that time of night that was big enough to cause that kind of mm -hmm. problem. But it wasn't really even a conscious thing like that where I was searching around, like, what could it be? It was just something that I saw. Um, so, yeah, there's a symbolism to it in the same way that a dream might have symbolism. But, um, but then once that I, once I discovered that symbol of, <clears throat> I, I worked toward it um, for the resolution of part two. So I thought it would be nice to end part two with the same confrontation. And what that confrontation means, to, I think it's pretty actually straightforward. Um, if you think about what bears are, what, what they, the most, most unusual thing about them is that they hibernate and then they come back to life in the spring. So um, it's death, it's a symbol of death and rebirth. It's interesting because like, the, the idea of kind of rebirth um, and kind of renewing yourself, that, that is something I picked up on the yeah. film. But I hadn't, I, but today, I will admit, I hadn't attached the bear to that part of it because I was getting yeah. that very much from the character's structure and all this sort of thing. But it, it's interesting to hear that. You can also um, read it as just a, as a stand-in for the dark forces of nature, mm. the shadowy aspects of consciousness. Yeah, I, I think in my day, because of because of when it appears, I suppose I had this kind of like bet noir idea kind of going rumbling around in my head. But mm -hmm. again, it's interesting that you can kind of go with multiple angles to it. Um, one thing I was wondering about was the the actors and kind of how they related to your. Script. Now, I understand you you created certainly the first segment, if not the whole thing, with um, Aubrey Plaza in mind for for her role. Um, so I, I would imagine a lot of the things that you, the ideas you had for her are, are on the page. But in terms of Christopher Abbott and Sarah, what did they bring anything surprising to the, the script in terms of kind of how they represented emotions or relationships that you weren't expecting? Or did it all kind of like roughly play out as you had all maybe envisaged once you'd got the, the cast nailed down? Um, they, I try not to go into shoots with too much of an expectation about how the roles are gonna be played. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not the kind of director who wants to micromanage the interpretation or performance that um, people need to move a specific way on a specific line or, um, I'm not, I like to see what the actors bring to it. So it wasn't that I was so much surprised as that I was pleased, you know, I wasn't because I didn't have anything expectation to necessarily be, um, surprised against, but, uh, they, they were really, all three of them were really creative and brought a ton of stuff, uh, to the film, but that's not unusual in every film I've done. The actors have always been, uh, collaborators and have always brought stuff. I, I mean, I can give a few examples. Um, I think 
the there's a scene in which uh, you know the the, the big dramatic uh, sort of denouement happens, and then the crew has to hold for room tone. That was Aubrey's idea. It was not in the original script, and she just came up to me one day and was like, "Hey, wouldn't this be um, wouldn't this be great if we did this?" And I just said yes, and we put that in there. And a lot of the um, Chris, for example, one great mo moment has to do with um, Chris and Chris and Paolo Lazaro, who's playing the assistant director in part two. She fed, she was feeding him some, I guess it was trail mix or whatever it was. That mo moment of how he wants the trail mix put like directly into his palm, that was just stuff that they they brought. So you know, it's just um, it's just being open to what the actors are bringing and letting them have freedom. And there are many little moments like that all over the movie in which they kind of bring the script to life more vividly than you had imagined. So those those things were surprising, but but you also kind of expect them because that's part of what actors do. How have you? How have you found the process of presenting this at festivals and now obviously coming up to the UK release? Because you, you basically you've kind of got you got in just under the wire pre-COVID with Sundance last yeah. year, and then yeah. ever since then it's been very much kind of a a remote thing primarily. It strikes me as a sort of film where, as a director, you'd probably be quite interested in seeing how people experience it in the room. Mm -hmm. Is that is that something that is that something that you've missed and how do you think, will you try and get that in kind of like a tentative reopening now if it is playing or do you feel, how's that going to affect you going forward? I think really in terms of when you next conceive of a project, if you don't have that kind of like same level of direct feedback. Yeah, it's interesting. I, um, I think with previous films that I've done and I've toured, uh, toured with them to more than just one film festival, which is which was the all I had for this one. Um, it's tended to be a very self-involving process for me where I'm constantly monitoring like people's reactions to me. If people like me, then I feel great. And if people dislike the film, then I feel hurt or um, discouraged in some way. So uh, while I had kind of looked forward to seeing the world and, and, and going to Europe or whatever with, with the film, and I didn't have a chance to do that, it's disappointing in some ways. I think it's actually been pretty healthy to just, hey, the movie's out there and now I'm working on my new thing. <laughs> Whereas I might've spent like a year touring around with the movie, just thinking about myself, like how great I am and then how much I suck, you know, in this, in this sort of schizophrenic, bipolar way. Um, so I feel like this just, the movie came out and it's out there and people are enjoying it or they're not. And I don't know too much about that. And I'm just kind of carrying on with my work, which is going in new directions. So I think it all kind of worked out. Um, I think it all kind of worked out. Yeah, okay, that's good. To, that's good to know. I, I've had, I've had, I've been asking a lot of people that question. It's, uh, it's interesting to hear the different responses. I've not, I've not had before, but it makes perfect sense to me this idea that <laughs> you don't necessarily want uh, everybody's immediate reactions if you find uh, find an audience or a particular person who doesn't doesn't get as much out of it as you'd hoped. Um, well, I think when you're younger, you're hungry for that kind of kind of um, response, just because you're still shaping yourself and I. Older I get, it's kind of like I know the things I want to do, and people are going to like them or not, and um, I don't need to necessarily 
go confront that experience again. I've been through it so many times. When you were, um, just to finish off, I was wondering, because obviously part of the, um, the, the feeling that's generated with the film comes down quite strongly to the location as well. Um, I was wondering how hard it was to find the location you wanted for this particular script. Because um, it, it, it's, it's quite apparent to me as a viewer that you found basically the perfect location to kind of like contain this um, this set of characters and this set of interactions. But how how difficult a process was that? Is this something that you stumbled upon, knew about already, or was it a bit of an arduous task to find where you were going to set this film? It's interesting. So uh, the, the internet, I think, has made so many things, so many answers uh, to questions less interesting. Like, it actually wasn't that hard. We looked at a lot of places online from the comfort of our own home and just like looked at a bunch of pictures on VRBO. We ended up narrowing it down to three just based on, you know, we probably looked at hundreds of places, but it's easy to do it. You could do it in a day on your you know, whereas before the internet, you would have had to go physically to all these places, um, which probably would have been fun and you get to hang out with your location manager and like have a nice social experience and drive around upstate New York and look at leaves. But we really just looked at a lot of places online, narrowed it down to three, went and checked them out. This was the one I, I loved the most. It was the one that we only, it, we needed, I really wanted it to have three separate structures that all had a view of the lake and we're all in close proximity to the lake and no other location we found had that. Um, we would have had to cheat to make it look like that. Um, and so I chose this one, even though it was very inconvenient. It was, you know, just extremely deep, deep Adirondack woods, uh, eight hours from New York city and oh, okay. <laughs> three hours from Montreal. And it just, it wasn't a convenient place. There was no cell phone service or Wi-Fi or anything, but it was it was definitely what I wanted for the movie. Thank you again for the film. Uh, I enjoyed it an enormous amount. If if enjoy is indeed the correct word for certain segments of it, but I got uh, <laughs> I got a lot out of it. I I, I enjoyed view, the viewing experience. Um, Great. So thank you very much for that. Um, well, thank you, man. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, thank you for talking to me, and hopefully, hopefully, UK audiences will get as much out of it as I did. I appreciate it, Jim. Thanks a lot. lucky people that can travel anywhere. Yes, ma'am. And they sometimes call you nomads. My mom says that you're homeless. Is that true? No, I'm not homeless. I'm just houseless. Not the same thing, right? No. My husband worked at the USG mine in Empire. I was a substitute teacher. It is a tough time right now. You may want to consider early retirement. I need work. I like work. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Welcome to Badland Spa. What the nomads are doing is not that different than what the pioneers did. I think Fern's part of an American tradition. The next film we're going to review is Nomadland, uh, which Jim and I both saw. Uh, it's 
going to be on Disney Plus on the 30th, hopefully in other places as well um, coming up. But uh, Jim, just give a little overview. I think what you saw it at um, London Film Festival first or, or um, but yeah, tell us about the film. Yeah, so I saw the film when it was on the, the film festival circuit and it's been around for a while now uh, in terms of kind of in the conversation. And I think it's I think it's really excellent and we'll hopefully talk about it. But it is directed by Chloe Zhao, um, who has made a couple of films before this. I think The Rider did uh, quite well and was very well regarded. I've not had the chance to see it yet, but it's very well thought of. Um, since then, she's actually got in the can, but it's obviously not been finished yet, a, a Marvel film, actually. So she's kind of, you know, in terms of wow. budget and visibility, she's really kind of like ascended very quickly. But Nomad Land um, is based on a book, um, Nomad Land Surviving America in the 21st Century. Uh, by an author called Jessica Bruder. And it basically deals with the idea of nomads. So people who are, they don't have a, a permanent abode, they, they live out of vehicles and they kind of go from gig work to gig work. And in particular in this film, we follow uh, Fern, played by Frances McDormand. And her backstory is that um, she used to live in this town, Empire, in Nevada. And the basically the sole industry the film was the not the film the town was built around shuts down. Uh, her husband dies, and basically she then leaves um, to be houseless. And this is a, I'm not going to say homeless, right? Because this is a line which is spoken in the film. Uh, she'd be houseless, and she looks to travel around the United States, basically taking on gig work. Um, you know, forming community, sometimes transient with uh, other nomads. And one of the main supporting roles there is uh, David Strathairn um, as a fellow nomad. And there are a bunch of other folk in the film who are actual real-life nomads that have played a role in the film. And that, that kind of brought about some similarities that we might spoke about, we might speak about with uh, other filmmakers. But basically, it basically follows her her journey doing that uh, and, you know, and, and, and both emotional and physical. And I I was very impressed with it. Um, I'm sure we'll get into it, but I'm wondering how you found it, Amanda. Yeah, I, I really, I really liked this film, and I think perhaps because I had heard so much about it, I wasn't even having that high of expectations. But I, re I really did like it. Uh, it brought me into a world that I didn't know, um, but at the same time, you know, you might see growing up or traveling, you know, traveling across the West. It's not a world that I feel completely comfortable. I felt like you know, it's, it, it's, it's dealing with grief and uh, really a trying period. Well, I mean, I think, I think it doesn't take place in the great recession or something. So particularly like talks about a very specific period of time um, that, you know, you know, it was very, it's very troubling in America. Uh, but, uh, but, but it was, but it was a, it was a really great film about building community or how people look out for each other and these, these really tough situations. Um, and I learned, I, I, I just enjoyed it. And I, I thought it was, it was, um, it was quite, uh, yeah, just therapeutic in some capacity, uh, just, you know, to watch it. I thought, uh, Francis McDormand's, uh, you know, subdued, but incredible performance. I always find that she's quite great in, in films, but I thought this was a, a really, really good subdued performance. It was, it was, it was really wonderful. And um, I also really 
liked that impression of like, I guess I didn't know that they were real life nomads, but I think there was this kind of element of, you know, a road movie documentary mixed with, um, you know, a narrative film that we've talked about sometimes these hybrids, I'm not a hundred percent into, but I thought that this in this story worked really well. Um, you know, I like, I don't know if it, it yeah, I mean, it, like I might have some issues with it, but other overall, I thought it was really captivated and, and, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure you want to, you could put, you, you could pick holes in this, but I think the, I really connected with it very strongly. First, first of all, it's a beautiful looking film. Yeah. Um, but I think the, something that's quite important about it is that it's not, or at least I certainly didn't find it to be, um, you know, beautifying poverty or, you know, any of these sort of things that you might be able to um, throw at it. To me, it felt like, and this is a pretty bold statement, but I, I think I'll, I'll stand by it. it. It struck me as, it reminded me, now the obvious comparison that I think can be made with uh, Chloe Zhao's uh, filmmaking, particular this one, if you look at the imagery, is probably Terrence Malick and a lot of Terrence Malick's recent work, right? It has that same, you know, there's a lot of wide angle shots of kind of like, you know, these beautiful expanses and kind of incredible settings that people find themselves in and then using that to evoke kind of their their personal emotions. So that is definitely there, but to me, there's a much more human aspect to it than certainly any of Malik's recent work, a lot of which I, I put my cards on the table, I found a bit tiresome. Now, I've not seen his most recent, but I'm thinking of, um, I'm thinking of basically stuff between the tree of life and now, right? And it didn't, quite connect for me i really did with nomadland at the same time there is an element of ken loach's work there both in the kind of the use of non-professional actors and this fact that it addresses the way the way that the american economic system is, and it goes beyond america i mean i think the focus is very american here but like these are issues that pop up in a lot of countries including here in the uk it's um the way that it goes after those ideas politically, I think is also a little bit loach-like, but to me it's dealt with in a much more considered way for fitting a personal story into it. And that's not that's not me detracting from Loach's recent work, in particular his most recent one, Sorry We Missed You. I thought it was a brilliant film and I would I would encourage anybody to watch it. I think it was really great. But there is a certain poetry that I think Zhao has brought to, or Zhao rather, has brought to, um, has brought to Nomadland and smacked it together with that beautiful imagery to create something that is very much her own. Um, and I think it's an excellent, excellent film. I think it would be very difficult to imagine um, anybody other than Francis McDormand in that role. I think mm -hmm. somebody with that. It needs somebody with that gravitas and experience to convey things very subtly, because uh, you know this is not a this is not a film which will have has soaring monologues or you know it, it's not that type of film. It's a quiet film. It's a mournful film, and on very on a number of levels, both for kind of like this idea of the America that we think of in the American dream, which is very much not in existence for the likes of Fern, but also on the more personal level, her mourn for her husband and her yeah. life with him. And I think the fact that it manages to deal with that on 
several levels simultaneously, I think is remarkable. And I think it's a brilliant film. I know for some folk, and we, we discussed this kind of off air, for some folk, some of the broader scale issues that it hints at, it maybe will not interrogate them enough for some people, but I don't think it's looking to be that sort of film. I, I, I really strongly believe that that is criticizing the film for not doing something it has no intention of doing. Um, and I think the way it blends all this together is really, really what is very interesting about it. I, you know, when you mentioned um, uh, Ken Loach, I definitely see that, but I also started to think about the Florida project and also like the mm -hmm. idea of uncovering uh, partially because of working with um, real people or, you know, non-actors, but also uncovering a story of a group of people who perhaps like don't get noticed as much or, or you know, or, or and um and also again response to some deep recession recession issues in America that are still continuing to have you know an impact and we we ignore them um you know for for a decade or two decades or or whatnot so I I I see the yeah I said I see that there like you briefly mentioned the concern about um, the use of Amazon and it did feel weird because it because in some capacity, I feel like Castaway was, you know, like it felt like product placement for sure. There was an element of it that's like, this is product placement. But in so much, if you were to hide the name Amazon, what other kind of place at this moment are people working in those capacity and, and actually have work um, and for better or worse? And it, it, it seemed like not a great place to work and not a great job to have, um, except like you mentioned briefly, the community that you create within those spaces that aren't you know that aren't I aren't ideal um and I, I definitely agree with you that it was a mournful film and it was a film that almost is talking about you know moving on you know in life and and uh and the things that we have to do we always have to reinvent ourselves but there are certain people who it's a lot easier just to reinvent and this is a very very hard life um and uh and it's 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 there's a lot of solitary i mean periods in your life where you're moving on and you're struggling and uh you have to just keep at it and it's and and it's so tough and it i thought it really captured that and it was very sad but very um i keep using that word resonant it felt very resonant to me and it and it it's definitely something I'll think about for quite some time. So I do think it wasn't just about the beautiful Western sort of thing. It was more, it really was about the people. Um, and uh, she captured that really well. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree with that completely. Um, I, it's in one of the, the, the things where when I've seen criticisms of this film, which do exist, and you know there 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 is some weight to some of them. I don't know if I necessarily agree with a lot of them, but I can you know they're not invalid. But I think what you've said there kind of captures it for me, and it's not it's not about the beautiful spaces, but it is about the people. But it is also about where they find themselves, and I mean that in kind of the transient nature that we we see this in the film. It's a case of there is this beautiful place there are these beautiful landscapes and there are people who are engaging in them in a completely different way to i think the way that a lot of society does and we're not necessarily acknowledging why they are having to do that and some of it is driven by personal 
choice and i think you see yeah. a little bit of that in the film right you know i don't want to make I, I don't want to go on a you know too much of a sympathy fest here but it does hint at and ask you to engage with the idea of why do people find themselves needing to do this and i think the way it represents that is very carefully and cleverly through the character of fern and it yeah. is a very personal story it's one that you can extrapolate out in various different directions you can look at it in a gig economy perspective you can look at it in a kind of industries dominating a town perspective you can look at it in terms of kind of forgotten communities you can do you can look off in any one direction but it all revolves around her central story and i think if you engage with that then you will get a lot out of the film and how much you get to out of it on a broader level is entirely up to you. If you focus on her story, I still think it's a very powerful and very engaging story. But I do think those other strands are there and I do think it addresses them, but it just doesn't necessarily draw as much attention to them as it Well, yeah. I mean, I do know, I do have family who has a big RV and, you know, travels half the year, you know, like in a, you know, one of those ones in that particular scene where they're looking at the, you know, like they're in that sort of, um, what's it, the, like, the, the show that shows off RV life mm. and and there's a YouTube series of people who travel and you know turn their you know vans into you know vegetable oil kind of things and so there's there is this sort of uh, American so optimism of the nomad but that that was not to me the story like you said it was very personal about this one particular person and how how her life had to change because of the things that came into her life. And she had, you know, she had to like encounter and how one does do that, but how one finds community when you have to. And it's, um, I mean, it does make me think of this period of t time right now, you know, and what potentially will happen with, you know, the economy and, and whatnot and, and what we, what we've had to endure in terms of building communities um, that we didn't expect to. Um, it's so, so it's, it's very, it's, it's, it's a great film on those levels. Did it completely cover and cover political things? Probably not, but it was, but it was, it was focusing on the emotional and the personal and that I, I got, I gathered that. So I took that from the film and I enjoyed that. So Nomadland is on Disney plus, um, and on the 30th of April, also up for, uh, nomination at the oscars many nominations for the oscars so um yeah if uh and if you're in the u.s it's on hulu so um if you can check it out check it out and uh let us know what you think so we come to this part of the uh, a podcast when we're talking about one of our favorite things, uh, short films. And because it's our Oscar special, sort of, it's even more my favorite thing because one of my most favorite uh, things about the Oscars is finding out who won the Oscar nominated shorts. Um, so we took a look at the live action films, uh, which I believe you can see all, um, well, either through some, you know, Netflix or whatnot, but also Curzon is showing them um, entirely as a, as a program as well. So you can look that up on Curzon between now and uh, Sunday to decide which ones you like. But I, I'm going to ask the team here what um, they thought of these films and which ones were their favorite. So yeah, uh, 
Clara, what did you think? Well, uh, I it's quite it's quite hard to to choose from uh, from all of them which one I like the best because I I do like all of them. Uh, but I think my my, my favourites were um, feeling through the lecture room and the present. Um, so. Feeling Through is um, about uh, a deafblind man at the bus stop and um, a homeless man, well, a man who finds, I should say, a man who finds himself suddenly homeless. Um, it can be very reductive or unhuman to call someone just a homeless person. Um, so it's about their interaction um, and about what they can bring to each other's lives and sort of what they can realise through each other. Um, the letter room, so fascinating, um, about a very kind and caring prison guard who is tasked with t go looking through the, the letters coming in and out um, to inmates and him getting a little bit too involved in that. I particularly enjoyed that one. Um, the Present is a film which deals with um, the West Bank and the people who are forced to cross the border crossings just for every single small thing. Um, I, I particularly enjoyed The Present, I guess, because um, the Israel-Palestine conflict is, has been going on for, for so long. Um, it's, one of those, it's one of those things that can almost, when you mention it or if you see people, you know, petitioning out in town uh, with the Palestinian flag or university, on a university campus, you can kind of turn a, turn a blind eye to it because it's just one of those almost cliched political causes that people who are into lefty politics just sort of go for, um, unfortunately. Uh, but I've got Palestinian friends and uh, Israeli friends who've worked at the West Bank. So um, it's very real still, obviously. Uh, so it's one of those very, these, these, uh, this pol these political issues which seems very impenetrable because it's been going on for so long and because it's so highly politicized, you can be accused of being an anti-Semite if you're anti-Israel, you can be pro-terrorist if you're, if you're pro-Israel, you know, it's pro-Palestine or just accused of not understanding the situation because you don't live there. Um, but this is one of those, one, those films that in such a short space of time takes that very complex issue and just rehumanizes it again mm -hmm. and really brings, brings to the audience how futile and how arbitrary and mad conflicts and borders can be and how dehumanizing uh, these age-old conflicts can be for, and, and so damaging to the next generation as um, this story centers around uh, a father and a daughter just trying to, just trying to fulfill a basic task and seeing that through the eyes of a child, um, a defiant child, a lovely but defiant child is, is really fascinating. It makes you understand how conflicts can roll on through the generations because um, suffering begets suffering, doesn't it? Just rolls on. Absolutely. Um Simon, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I've I've seen all five of these these uh, best live action shorts that the the Academy Award the Academy has nominated, um, and I think they all deserve to be there. They're, they're all fantastic short films. Um, the ones that jumped out on me, the ones that jumped out for me are the present, uh, which Clara's already spoken about, uh, two distant strangers, and white eye. Um, so two distant strangers is. Uh, on Netflix, it's a really interesting uh, short film about a uh, time loop. We were talking about Palmer Springs last time I was on the show. Um, and I think this does more with the time loop sort of subgenre than, than Palmer Springs does. Uh, it's it's sort of talks about um, the, the epidemic of uh, cops murdering black people in America. Uh, and it evokes kind of Eric Garner and... Uh, George Floyd um, as as a black man gets caught in a time loop where he's repeatedly shot by a police officer. Um, I just found it really impactful and really entertaining um, while illuminating that 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 issue. Um, 
and the other one is White Eye, which is uh, an Israeli film about uh, a man who finds his bike that has been stolen previously, uh, and he wants to get his bike back. Um, and and it, that one unfolds in a really interesting way, it says something interesting about uh, Israeli society, which is kind of the flip side of the present in some sense. Um, and it's 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 technically very impressive. It, it does something very impressive with the kind of single continuous take that we saw kind of with 1917 last year. Um, and it, it 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 wasn't as entertaining as some of the other films while I was watching it, but it really stuck with me after after seeing it. Uh, and I think it's it's a really strong short film. I, I loved White Eye because yeah. uh, because it's so quintessentially Israeli. As well, mm-hmm. uh, the, mm-hmm. I, I love seeing all that. So I, I watched it back to back after watching uh, um, two, two Strangers, like the, the time loop situation in America. Um, so I really liked looking at the different cultures, the, the, the different the different ways that the police uh, can represent this authority figure and a dangerous yeah. authority figure, but you know, in a different sense. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. That's why I love the shorts, the Oscars, because they're always so much more varied uh, in terms of you know representing different cultures, and you can you know you can watch them back to back, you get a real sense of how different, how exactly similar different human experiences are across the world. Um, so yeah, uh, White Eye was just was was really fascinating. Um, how it just shows how dangerous the world uh, is to be an immigrant or a refugee. Um, it's it's fantastic. Yeah, and I did think of you, Simon, when I was watching Two Distant Strangers because I didn't realize we were in the golden era of time loop. I last said, month. I said last now, time I was here. <laughs> now I'm a hundred percent sure Cemented. we are. They're everywhere. They're all over. <laughs> they're everywhere. But I also, um, if you take uh, Two Distant uh, Strangers and feeling through, I mean, I, I think grow- living in New York, I feel like th- those both have this really interesting. I mean, really relevant, important conversations, but I particularly really liked feeling through. I think it, it was um, very special. Uh, well, particularly because I really like the Chinatown arcade that like is briefly showcased there. It's a very small little gem in, in there, but also just, um, yeah, just the importance of human interaction right now. And, um, and, you know, the, impe- you know, the importance of community and sort of, and whatnot that that happens in a city like that and i thought it was really sweet it was subdued and but sweet and 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 great so all of these films are really worth checking out and like we said you can check it out on curzon but you can also check it out probably some of them are also available on netflix or vimeo or something like that so we'll send we'll put links to to all of them to check out and definitely the best thing about the oscars for me short films because it really shows that like they're there's there's so much other stuff out there than the the top five that you you know get noticed but like they're still it's it's still such a great thing that that's always been a part of the of of, of the show and always my one that i'm trying to, I, i'm i'm rooting for so um <laughs> any in terms of predictions uh as we wrap up um jim's favorite bit because i know he's he he's <laughs> excited and will stay up all night the other thing i was wondering is just whether or not it's too late for uk audiences and hence not as enjoyable obviously because by by too late for uk audiences and not as enjoyable do you mean the postponement to april so i had to put up with three extra months of oscar <laughs> is that is that is that what you mean by too no, late? because i'm or... gonna stay up all night and watch it and if yeah if if there was we weren't in a pandemic i would probably go out to a 
Oscar all nighter party, but it's it, it is it is sad to me that that's the one thing about living in the UK is I don't get to watch them and in uh yeah like you have to stay up all night for this but um what are what what what's our predictions here today best film but I, i'm gonna make an anti-prediction first okay uh no 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 i you know i'm a grump i hate the also i've done that bit that's done <laughs> but, um, what i mean is i think mank is probably not gonna win hardly anything despite the fact i think it's got the best is it not got the most nominations it's got like 10 or something wow i didn't know that something like let me that, let yeah. me let me look at this but anyway my prediction is that i don't think that's actually going to end up winning all that much because it's one of these films where yep 10 predictions is good 10 predictions what am i talking about 10 nominations it's got four more than any other film hmm. so mine has the most and I suspect it's probably not going to win a huge amount of them. To be See, honest. I think I think he might win Best Director. Um, I don't think he necessarily should. I didn't care for Mank, um, but I, I think he might win Best Director. Wow, sure, surely not. He said, in my in my view, right? And again, I hate ranking things. Blah blah blah. You know, whatever my usual shtick. However, I I would actually go so far as to, and despite my misgivings about promising on women that we've discussed technical difficulties pending i think my i i do think that that nomination director is probably the weakest of the five to be honest i would give it to any of the others ahead of david fincher to be honest mm. but yeah oh yeah so would i but i think i think the academy loves a director who talks about hollywood yeah <laughs> i mean that's the stereotype um maybe but then 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 you always think oh surely they're aware of that maybe they want to go but yeah yeah, not really proven that. I, I would like to think that Sound of Metal will get a look in. Um, I would, yeah, I would, I would really like that to be to be the winner. But I have, I actually have a feeling that maybe, I mean, if it's not Mank, then maybe the Trial of Chicago Seven. Like, unfortunately, because uh, because it's so timely, maybe they're gonna throw that in. Really, I have. Well, that's one of the films I didn't see, so I'm I'm, I'm curious about I, that. I would have said the in the Best Picture realm, Mank is out. And probably Trial of Chicago Seven, um, and I, I, if I had to put money on it, it would be Nomadland. I think Nomadland I, will go. You know, I think I, I think if they, if do I go for it? And you know, there, there are many opinions are available about all of these films. I think if even having not seen the Trial of the Chicago Seven, I think if they wanted a reasonably safe choice, it would probably go that way. But I think in terms of the best balance between. Um, being able to present themselves as being progressive, even if they're not particularly as a body, um, but also having a very good film to do it with, I think Nomadland is yeah. is probably the the best pick. I think, in all honesty, I like it quite unusually. I think um, the trial of the Chicago Seven accepted because I've not seen it. I think I'm broadly on board with just about everybody, every film there. Like, there's not a like to, there's not a green book. You know, mm. like I, there, there's <laughs> yeah. nothing. Thank I, I, there's nothing that kind of like stands out to me as say, so I, oh well, what the hell is that there for? I mean, it sounds, it sounds like for you, maybe man. I haven't seen it. No, I am so. not, having seen it. I'm. I would be annoyed if that one. Really? Uh, yeah, I would because it's very well. It's very Sorkin, you know, um, yeah. trying to condense a political issue, a complex issue, into the arc of you know of of, of a classic film. It's like you know the 
welling drama, the, the, the really respectable opposition, just like it's very, it's very stereotypical uh, of, of his work. And I really, and it is very, I think it would have been pertinent and political and of, of its time, you know, if it had been uh, brought out a couple of years ago, but given the events of the last year in America, it feels apologetic now. And it feels like it's, it's doing what the Academy often does, which is it comes late to the party in terms of what is, what is cutting edge, what the issues are. Um, so I would be disappointed if that won, but I think it's classic enough, you know, it seems good enough to, to, to make it, but hopefully not. No offense, sorry. Sorry, Chicago. Seven we, um, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I haven't seen it again, but I mean, Judas and the Black Messiah, as we discussed last month, is a great film, and it's 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 a it's it could potentially it's a very Hollywood film too. It's quite yeah. It's it it could be a quite safe option, um, you know, that, in that, in some capacity. That would be my yeah. That would be my pick um, if I were choosing it. But I do think, based purely on discourse around it, uh, Nomadland. Would probably take it. Judas and the Black Messiah is an interesting one for this, actually. And I said, like, it'd be right up there for me. I thought that was a brilliant film, but I think it's basically the chances of that winning a lot of things. I think has basically been hobbled by both of the actors and like both of the both of the. Both of the leads is going to sound contradictory, given what I'm about to say. But both of the the, the lead roles being lumped into the same category, right? That's an um, absolutely baffling decision to me. Yeah, it, I don't understand yeah. it at all. So and, and the thing is, I think like if you if I look at the kind of the people in best lead actor, right? Me, I'd give it to Riz Ahmed. I think I think you you could comfortably pick anybody there. Like I think Gary Oldman's performance is good. It's just like you know, I mean, I'm I'm not sold on buying like Gary Oldman has an Oscar. Forget about it. Like you know, give it to somebody else. Um, I what I will say, I have seen The Father, and I think Anthony Hopkins is brilliant in that. But if I was picking, I'd go for Riz Ahmed or Stephen Yoon. Mm-hmm. But the thing that's interesting, I think. I think Lakeith Stanfield would probably give them a run for their money if he was in that category, as he should be, because he's the lead of the film. Mm. Um, and then, if that's the case, then looking at who's left in supporting actor, I, I, I think, I think Daniel Kaluuya might win that anyway. But I think the chances of Judas and the Black Messiah winning, winning any big Oscars beyond just that one, have been completely hobbled by those two being the same category. When they should yeah. be, it's mental. Yeah. You know, those are the roles of Judas and the Black Messiah. So, like, you know, who's the who's the lead actor exactly? It's just it's yeah. a bit it's a bit. Weird. I don't know who the Academy thinks is the lead actor in that film, um, and to put them both as supporting is. I think it is a choice, though, of the. Uh, from what I understand, with the favorite, there there was you know a, a push to have Olivia Coleman be the be the main. Actor, but they can that. they can be nominated in any though because I know I know mm. from like the like the publicity campaigns and stuff, Warner Brothers were placing Lakeith Stanfield as the lead. Oh, okay, because I, right. I so it's purely in kind of like what people are giving them votes for. I think these ended up there, but I think they were they were campaigning on the basis that he was the lead actor. I think that you can remove yourself from something if you're I, that. That's what I was told, when specifically in the favorite because you had three really lead um, actors in that. Comp- in that capacity, you know, in the spot, and then they moved down to supporting actor, female supporting actor. That's what I was told, but I could be wrong as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's that. That's again, it's just so many options here. Really good, um, really good uh, performances. So, in terms of um, actress in a leading role, uh, what do you think? Katie I haven't seen it. Yeah, I'd like to see Carrie Mulligan. 
Take I it. haven't seen enough, I think, but um, I'm, I'm torn because I feel I feel Viola Davis did such a good job yeah. uh, of marrying his black bottom. And she really embodied that really fantastically well. Mm-hmm. Um, I've not seen enough of the other of the others. Um, I've not. I've not seen the United States versus Billy Holiday. As I understand, it's meant to be a very good performance from Andrew Day, but I've not actually not actually seen it. And actually, I tell a lie, I've not seen Pieces of Women either. But of the three that I have seen, um, and as we've already discussed on the show, despite my, you know, some of the issues I had with promising young women, I think any of those performances are are good shouts. Like yeah. you know, Katie Mulgan's performance is the the heart of that film, and I think it's like for me anyway, it's it's really the standout thing in it. Um, Francis McDormand, I think, is excellent in Nomadland, and I think that's another that's another that's not a very subtle performance. Um, you know, that's maybe hard to gain traction in that, but given Nomadland is getting probably gonna get a few others, I wouldn't bet against it. But it's another one of these ones where I think to be honest, I think all of the acting Oscars show what a good year it has actually been for film. Yeah. despite all the difficulties it's had. Um, one thing that I do think is quite interesting to see is Maria Bakalova getting a nomination for Borat, or Borat 2. Yeah. It's a bit of a strange one. I'm not sure I'm fully yeah. on board. It is interesting to see them kind of you know, go for comedy, which I wasn't really expecting. So I, I, I don't know how on board I am with that specific nomination, but it's, you know, it's interesting. I, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not like we've got a Gwyneth, pa- Gwyneth Paltrow situation going on so that it could be it could be worse <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised i don't really i don't have uh, i'm not i'm not uh, irate about any of these choices which is kind of boring <laughs> but yeah i think it will be francis mcdormand i mean because i think no man land is a front runner in terms of um you know best film uh for for many good reasons and i also think that that film is predominantly her you know like on screen so um it and and i think she, you know, for right reasons as well, a very um, incredible actor, uh, you know, has done some stuff that people, you know, like has, has won before. So I, uh, you know, I, you know, I think it's, it's, it's quite possible. So that is my call. It doesn't mean it's, it's my number one choice because I'm torn, but, um, but I think I would, I would call that. But just to get my parting shot in the best films of the year are not in, (laughs) any of the Oscar categories. Ooh, and what's okay, your well, best film of the yeah. year? Never, rarely, Black sometimes, Bear. always. <laughs> no, 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 yeah, no, Black Bear, give Black Bear all the awards. But no, you know, in all, in all, see, Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always was a film that blew me away. I thought it was excellent. Yes. And it, it's very, mm-hmm. it, it's kind of, I, I have already seen stuff go around the internet about like people refuted, you know, you know some conservative academy members refusing to watch it because it deals with the topic of abortion and i think oh, now Father. how how widespread that is i don't god know. what hope do they have of being oh, god. yeah well <laughs> you know but but and how widespread that is i don't know i'm sure there's plenty of people who did who, who did watch it on screeners but the fact that i never even particularly expected a film like that to appear is kind of what yeah. saddens me because i really because i really do think that's an excellent excellent film um that's not there the assistant as well, like I think yeah, that's another one which I, I think is an excellent I would, film. I thought that's noticeable. Uh, and let's be clear, people connect with these films. I mean, they're up at like they're up at other in other award series. They've won stuff at other ones, 
yeah. it's the Oscars win or not. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so really though, they're not in the Golden. I I think they're they're understated oh, films. The Golden I, Globes, come on. No, but no, but I'm I'm just saying they're understated <laughs> yeah. films that like they they were really and it also you have to look at the timing and where it was they were positioned. It's like mm-hmm. that seems so long ago when they when they came out. They also t- came out at a kind of bad time for. This for, this is true, but again, I return to. It doesn't seem to have hindered them in some other ones. Yeah. Which ones? You know, though? I want to. I want to know. Craig's Association, the, the like any number of these ones, the Spirit Awards, right? Okay. Which is obviously a big indie thing, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, you know, like basically just about all the films I mentioned here are all up for multiple things. There, like it's. I I don't. I don't know enough about the process and kind of the demographics of the Academy, but. It is sad to me that basically I never even had an expectation these films would get in. You know, I, and it's a case of occasionally they have these ones that yeah, they're the ones where people will look at them who don't like, you know, watch a lot of films or not plug it into and will go, well, what the hell's that? I've never even heard of it. You know, so these things can appear there, but it's just, to me, it's a bit unfortunate that you have something like, um, you know, I mean, I haven't seen it, so I'm not going to be too cynical, but The Trial of the Chicago 7, right? It's got loads of big cast members and Sorkin. It's all very spangly, right? Mm. It's, to me, that that film probably is there probably on the basis of that rather than any than anything else. It would have slipped right yeah. under, like, as much as much as uh, The Trial itself is a really seminal part of history, it dissects a lot of, a lot of issues in history, so the Black Panthers and also a lot of other social movements, mm. and it's permanent today. Despite that, you just can't help but feel it wouldn't have gotten anywhere. You're right, mm. because, it, because it, yeah, it's been repackaged and handled by professionals who know how to get the Hollywood treatment. You know, they, they, they made that film to be an Oscar nom, for sure. I, I don't disagree with you, Jim, that, you know, certain films, I've never, I don't think there has been an Oscars where my favorite film was nominated, but it's not, it's my, my assumption that the films that I like will not be nominated for the Oscars, but, you know, I'm luckily happy that the films that are nominated are films I do enjoy and I did like, and whether they were my favorite or not, um, you know, I- I think this is where we get to the crux of like why you and I disagree on the Oscars, <laughs> right? Because I think I, I I'm not under the illusion that the Oscars exist to actually reward things that are objectively the best, whatever that actually objectively means, right? is. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah, right. Problem. You know, it's, it, it's it's something it's something that you could you you can't do. But the, the entire discussion around them for months and months and months is on the basis that they are somehow. Right, and people get annoyed about what is left out or what is nominated, and it basically, I think my issue with it is it creates some sort of canon, right? And if a film doesn't get into this canon, then you can get down the line and it's forgotten, despite the fact that there are many films that came out even this year where I think they deserve to be remembered more than a lot of these films. And they, and also, this is not true across the board because you know, for every Trial of the Chicago 7, there is a Sound of Metal. For every Green Book, there is a, uh, you know, a Moonlight. For every, you know, like, mm. it's, it's not like it's kind of like uniformly, I just think they nominate nonsense. That's that's obviously not true. But it's more, I think it's more, it's less to do even with its impact in the moment. But it's more in the future, right? And, and to a certain extent, you can point to films that didn't win, and how they're now considered classics or something as evidence against me. But 
at the same time, there must be dozens of films that are brilliant. I'm sure we could probably name some that would never even gotten near these things. And the thing is, I don't think they'd get picked up and looked at in the same way because they never made it there. And I think you're seeing that. I think a lot of what <laughs> you could even argue that a lot of the represent representation issues that the Oscars have is driven by the fact that across history, there's these swathes of films and filmmakers and eighties of film that just never got anywhere near it. But that yeah. ends up forming the canon that we think of as classic film. Of and course. That, that, that's mm. kind of my issue, I think. Sure, know, but it's it. not going to fix everything and it's not going to compile everything we need and, you know, for, for film and film history. And um, yeah, I, I just don't, don't give it that, I, I don't give it that much uh, respect, I suppose, but I, I do but think people that- people do, but people do, that's the thing. Yeah, I think the issue is that the industry does. Um, but yeah. I, I still go back to like like I think this was a couple of years of argument like some 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 film like Roma well for for sure the film like Roma would not have been made if it, if the director hadn't you know you know the director hadn't been the director that he was he was mm-hmm. but the yeah. the fact that the film was I thought quite exceptional and some of the you know the actors in were nominated wasn't it a massive thing for somebody to be nominated. Um, for that category and was was important on an international spectrum so it's not just a U.S. only kind of thing and I think like, were- I begrudgingly accept that but I'm bitter about the fact that the 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 such a small area of the world and such a small amount of people uh, with questionable taste have such agenda setting power <laughs> in the first place so like I completely get where you're coming from but like I do resent that that is the case in the first place sure and like how do you how do you overcome that and it's like so so then you're you're faced with the quandary of so should I care about it should I talk about it should I give more power to it to it like what else can you do um I mean, yeah, and then and then what happens when you do agree that they, these films are brilliant? I mean, the fact I really feel like we should mention Minari, which is brilliant, and mm-hmm. talks about the the Asian immigrant experience in America, which is totally not talked about. And there's so many there's so many issues specific to that community which are not being discussed. And the fact that that's made it in, I respect that. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. So it's it's tough. It's hard. To, it's it's hard to know how you feel about it and what it means, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's it certainly didn't define my interest in film ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think that it it. it it's it is what it is that an industry is centered in a certain location and you know that and and it has a historical sort of history with that and Mm. whether that sort of evolves in a way that we're all more happy with which i hope that it is or it's a it's a way that we can get to i think each year we've seen some some improvements upon that and um and hopefully we'll continue to do so well, whether you love it or hate it, the Oscars are on this this uh, this weekend. So uh, we, uh, yeah, let us know what you think and um, enjoy them or, or ignore them. And um, we'll see you next month.